Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guests this week are Paul Gravett, Joe McAuliffe, and Tom Spurgeon. Um, this is one of our session of the uh, com- 
critics, comics critics roundtable where I get three guys smarter than myself um, to each choose a couple of books, and we talk about those books. So everyone's read a couple of read all the books from the pile or as close to it as they could, and um, and just interesting to hear what folks think of the, that work and um, kind of how that bounced off each other. So thank you, gentlemen, um, for joining me. You're welcome. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Thank you, Robin. I'm glad to a be pleasure. here. <laughs> it's always fun when there's more than one person. We have the awkwardness of figuring out how to uh, how to talk to each other. Mm. <laughs> um, so, I think I'm gonna. I've been kind of looking at our stack of books and trying to think of like some kind of narrative towards kind of how the works relate to each other because there's some some related works but I feel like kind of jumping into an oldie but a goodie and that was um, Joe's suggestion of uh, Monsieur Lambert um, from uh, French master Jean-Jacques Sempe uh, I probably mispronounced everything there Paul you can correct me it's pretty good it's it's Sempe and it's Lambert I think yeah but it's fine yes right. yeah, I'm, re I'm really glad that I'm really glad Joe you suggested this one because it's kind of slightly to one side, uh, yeah, and not yeah. necessarily acknowledged as a graphic novel. I, of course, bunged it into the uh, 1001 uh, comics book I did. Uh, yeah, to, to yeah. Stir things up a bit, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was interested in picking this one, uh, first of all, because it's from 1965, I believe, and you mm -hmm. generally do not see any French or mostly any European comics of that vintage getting translated to English and released here, and it was doubly unique because it comes from primarily an art books publisher, uh, Fiden, I believe they're called, and um, yeah, yeah, and they had, well, actually, I had noticed this years ago where I'd gotten a hold of one of their catalogs, and they had just started a big Sempe uh, effort where they were putting in a lot of books of his illustrations, uh, some of his comics collections, because he's been in uh, Paris Match a lot. He's been in the uh, New Yorker a bunch. He's done gags and illustrations for them, and uh, this was one of the early books they had promoted because it's essentially a long-form comic, a big uh, graphic album, let's say, and um, it had been around for long, and then for a while, and then just just out of the blue, I had been checking around. I'd actually found the old catalog in a pile of stuff I was rooting through, and I found out that the publisher was actually releasing this at a discounted price. And so I decided, well, I had clearly missed this the first time around, so I've never read this. I'm going to read this right here. And I thought it'd be interesting for us to discuss because it'd be such a unique item that would be relatively easy to receive or at least I thought so before I realized that half the participants in here aren't from the U.S. and wouldn't be getting the same discount. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, I'm wondering if either you, Paul, or Joe could actually give uh, listeners a little idea of who Senpei was um, so we kind of know a little more than here's this book for 1960-something. It's I interesting. Suspect, yeah. I suspect Paul knows a bit more than me, so he I mean, should... Well, I didn't... I've not been doing much homework on, on this, but I mean, yeah, I mean, Sompe is a really, I mean, for most, for many people, they'll be familiar with Sompe through the New Yorker. That's really for Americans the, the most visible thing, because he's done some beautiful covers. 
uh, for the New Yorker. And he's also, of course, extremely well known for Le Petit Nicolas, Little Nicholas, which has been also published by Fired, and which are actually stories written, of course, by René Gossini, the co-creator of uh, Asterix and, and famous for his scripts on Lucky Luke, for example. Um, so there's that connection. And um, he's kind of, he doesn't think of himself really as a comic artist. He actually was a guest a couple of years back now, maybe quite recently at uh, the Angoulême Comics Festival in France. And there was quite a hoo-ha that he was there at all. He's not you know, someone who likes being interviewed in public and this kind of thing, but it was a really fascinating talk. He was quite difficult to interview, I think, for the guy doing it. Uh, but, I mean, people, people were thrilled. I remember with several friends of mine were getting, getting books signed, and he had the most beautiful, original, um, you know, minimalist uh, stuff, uh, a drawing, the dedication drawings. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's, he is a, one of those kind of masters of this light touch and just beautifully sensitive um, and witty drawings. Um, his cartoons are wonderful. And uh, he's done, a, done several um, story-based you know, narrative graphic novel uh, projects. Um, one I also really like is a thing that's translated, it's translated as, as Martin Pebble, which is absolutely sweet stuff. It's a, it's a little little story about a boy, um, which is just charming, absolutely charming. So yeah, and, and as Joe was saying, Fryden just kind of seemed to have bought the catalogue and said, okay, we'll just put everything out. And um, it hasn't always necessarily clicked with a, a big public, so you can get them quite quite uh, discounted if you're lucky. Yeah. Does the Nicholas material have penetration into the UK market? Is there a is, does it have a presence at all? Do people buy it there? Sure, I mean it does a bit. Yes, I mean okay. um, uh, yeah, I, th I think that of of all the stuff, it's probably the the little Nicholas book, the Thirty Nicholas. That's that's the stuff that's crossed over a bit in the children's sort of all ages category. Uh, and finding them, I mean, I, think, I don't think they are. I think they are at least partly a UK publisher. So they have they have a very strong bookshop presence here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I. Yeah, and I'd imagine uh, some of Goskinny's uh, readers might be interested in that as well. I think it, I think it was published almost contemporaneously with Asterix, like in uh, Pilot itself. Mm. So, mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, but I, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, going through it, it's uh, somewhat interestingly presented in that essentially everything is a one-page drawing. Now, some of these drawings have more than one drawing inside it in that there'll be a drawing and then there'll be, say, a large thought balloon in which a different drawing will appear inside. But basically the entire action of the book takes place in a cafe, which is seen from exactly one perspective from the back looking toward the front door. And Sempi uh, basically redraws everything in the cafe every single time, including the dozen or dozen and a half uh, customers of the cafe. And so reading it takes on a sort of... Uh, a sort of ritual aspect, I think, because there's always dialogue clouding the cafe, and very little of the dialogue is actually pertinent to what I suppose I'd call the plot of the book. So you have guys mm. on the left side of the page discussing politics quite a lot, and if you want to, you can begin with their dialogue at the top and then kind of move down there and then sort of uh, navigate your way across the cafe to a guy who's always complaining about how he's always late and then interestingly on the very right side of the page where naturally your reading of the art on a page would end you see the main characters who are uh, Monsieur Lambert himself and his 
friends who all seem to be a bit older than him and as the story goes on become extremely interested in this woman that he appears to be seeing because Lambert has been missing from the cafe a lot and then he comes back and his stories of being with this woman uh, spark their interest and their reminiscences of their own youth possibly not entirely true reminiscences but the reminiscences they want to show each other and then at the bottom of the page there's a typeset narration in which the men sort of collectively discuss what's happening again from their subjective perhaps point of view and in this way you kind of you kind of live in the cafe for a little while in the course of reading you sort of go around to every table even though it's just a fixed single page drawing which i found an interesting approach it, it was it's almost, kind of like, it's almost like, a, like a theater piece in a way you can imagine it working very well as a as, as a stage piece isn't it where you obviously just have one set and, yeah, and as you say, we we learn about everything that goes on off stage, out of shot, kind of is filtered back and and discussed. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece. Absolutely, and the fact that it's a comic allows the dialogue to differentiate itself from one another, so that you still have the illusion of things happening simultaneously, as if, however, you while navigating the room are just hearing things distinctly, which is, I think, a virtue of comics. Was which, Robin going to say something? I was. Well, there are a couple of things. First off, um, he would move the camera angle which I thought was interesting from side he, like he would do a full uh, room and then he would yeah there's the occasional move. like like pan to the right or it pulls in a little yeah which I thought were like nice little touches that kind of accentuate the moment to kind of make this mm -hmm. one kind of this is a special time like there's something more focused here mm. yeah mm. one thing I thought was extremely interesting about the work in the context of of the work of his with which I'm more familiar, which is the New Yorker work, is a lot of the, the, the illustrations that appeared in the New Yorker over the years are these vastly detailed kind of works that kind of turn on a, a tiny detail within the rest of the detail. And he's kind of really kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a way of arranging space that's very appealing and a, a way that your eye kind of casts over an entire image in order to find the one moment or the 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 the, the message or the moment on which the rest of the image turns as a group and you have that almost as the kind of basic chord that goes throughout the book then it's always you're always kind of looking for this one particular space within that cafe for the progression of the plot and the other material kind of reacts to that kind of either crowding it or placed against it or balancing against it in this visual way and I, I just thought that was kind of endlessly fascinating to uh, read a work uh, based on that kind of, of spatial arrangement and I, I'm not sure that a whole lot of cartoonists do that Mm -hmm. And to occasionally isolate your attention on this particular cluster of people, I think, is to, I guess, reinforce the discussive, maybe subjective quality of what they're saying, because as the book goes on, uh, Lambert runs into trouble with his ladies, spoiler alert, um, and... <laughs> It's sort of, there's a certain ambiguity at the very end of it, and I know Sempe has a very gentle style, but in a way, the, the fact that we don't really understand what happens with Lambert, what's going on with him at the end is, it kind of uh, underlines the fact that us listening to these guys talk, you know, it, in the end, there isn't 
really the most meaningful connection between them and Monsieur Lambert. It, it's really them talking about themselves and kind of, you know, in a friendly and convivial way, using this guy to try and sort things out about themselves. And, you know, in the end, Lambert is missing from the drawing, and we don't really know anything about him, which I thought was very fascinating. I think they're also living vicariously through him. Yeah, certainly, mm, yes. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think there's a... Uh, yeah, there's a kind of we're getting a slightly skewed um, uh, pers- uh, viewpoint, aren't we, as to what's happening? And he, there's a gradual realizing that Mr. Lombard said life is probably going to be drifting away from them, and this little kind of circle, this this regular kind of fraternity, uh, uh, is going to start to perhaps break up or lose him anyway. So there's a slight melancholy to it, I think, underneath it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's a very well observed piece, and uh, it's un- I mean, it's unusual because, of course, as, as, as Tom was saying, I mean, uh, the, it's very tightly focused. Uh, as Tom was saying, I mean, the, the usual sort of massive scale of of Sompe's cartoons often the figures are diminutive and are often overshadowed by gigantic buildings and landscapes and interiors. Uh, this is very much sort of zooming in close most much of the time and, and focused in the way it is on on, on interaction of characters. And proves that I mean Sompe is not just some of the, a master of the individual cartoon, but can really narrate uh, visually and, and, and verbally brilliantly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's also neat how the kind of it, the whole package works as a whole because the cover is this mm. you know great street scene, and you see the lit mm. up uh, restaurant, and just kind of how you kind of flow into that. Sure, yeah. I, which is a more typical drawing or, or more typical illustration, or, or at least something I'm more used to seeing from him. Now, it, mm-hmm. does anyone know? I mean, is there a very specific cafe culture that this comments upon? Is this? I mean, I assume that there is, that maybe it's totally made up. But is that? Is, was there no, kind I, of I'm a male-dominated? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, we know that you know l- l- lunch is a pretty important sort of three-hour event for many people, <laughs> and particularly okay. not just in Paris, obviously. But yeah, that you're right. It is tapping into something that was very much of the time, and I guess also was quite, perhaps slightly uh, not quite as. Uh, I mean, obviously, France was going through the the, the 60s, 68, when 68 was coming up, uh, and it was in the wings, as it were. And so the it would be a slight kind of retro atmosphere. It was red in 65. It would be this is a kind of, but also a slightly kind of feel good thing and this is this is the sort of solid sort of core of, of Parisian lunch culture and, and the male bonding that goes on as part of that. Yeah, yeah. That, that it's very much rooted in that in, in in the mid sixties and, and in the, the French culture of food and and um enjoyment of food together. Yeah. Yeah. There's a wonderful detail on the cover, which is, in a, as you said, an exterior of the cafe. But mm, if you look, mm. it, it seems slightly illuminated from the rest of the uh, townscape, and it's illuminated by this uh, almost phantom-like drawing of a woman, like shining down onto it. Oh, and wow. so that's that's rather symbolic on its own. Mm-hmm. I don't even think about I mean, that. has got some of the same kind of lightness of touch of someone like Ronald Searle. He comes from a similar period of the beginning in sort of post-war, so particularly early 50s. And, and I mean, you've got a whole generation of cartoonists who are kind of sometimes peripherally get quite close to comics, but then sometimes drift away again, tantalizing really what could have, what people like Searle, Sompe, André Francois, other, others of this period um, could have done with, with more, what more they could have done with the form. Yeah, uh, certainly. You know, there's, there are other artists here in the UK. We've had people like Glashen who've done narrative things too, and it's this weird kind of side sort of tributary of the way the graphic novels develop that uh, uh, isn't always acknowledged, I think, in the in the in the histories and the overviews of where it's come from. Um, when I was reading it, am I the only one that would 
change up and occasionally read the bottom first before reading the top? Well, I approached it with military <laughs> precision, Robin. Just you. <laughs> it's my wandering Go with the, eyes. It's up to you. I tell you, there's probably no really sort of fixed rule. I think you can flow that way if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, like it didn't feel as like now in comics we have our way of how you're supposed to be reading it. It didn't feel as much rude in that because they kind of the text at the bottom would kind of serve a different function than the conversations mm -hmm. at the top. And it was mm -hmm. just, I don't know. It was. No, it, was well, it, it certainly facilitates different means of readings. Yeah. I, when I started, I, at one point I found myself ignoring the, the material that was on the left-hand side of the page, the political discussions, and almost treating that as visual, as, as a visual element or visual noise that allowed me to focus on the progression and the uh, the momentary progressions within the, the, the material on the right-hand side of the page, the discussion between the four men or, or the three men and the absent man. So. I don't oh, you mean just that... you mean just processing it as like just marks? Yeah, at one point yeah, I found right. myself doing that, and I'm not sure you know I'm not sure that that's that's to my credit entirely, but I, I yeah I did, I did find myself kind of tuning out, and also kind of um, not knowing what to do really with the bottom text because it, I found that to be probably the the least um, related to the way that I read comics now having this kind of intrusive text at the bottom so it was very difficult for me to figure out how to read that uh, material and how to uh, kind of incorporate that into my reading it, it's interesting to hear that the left side being kind of noise because for the most part it is pretty much set within that dialogue but there's an interesting moment where they kind of veer and start talking about uh, Lambert too and get into that conversation so I don't know if you caught that part or not. No, totally. And I, it's just something I found myself doing, and I corrected it because I don't, you know, I, th I think I should be reading the whole thing. But you know, my natural inclination was to kind of, uh, you know, move my eyes into one specific place and stay there. And I'm not sure exactly uh, why that is, or, or like I said, I'm not sure it's exactly a good thing that I did. But yeah, I mean, definitely, I think it's. For, so, for something that's static image, there's a lot going on there and a lot that's very interesting. Um, and just, you know, there's an interplay between the words and the pictures and that a lot of the dialogue is very concerned with time, which is very concerned and very concerned with time within the window of time that those men have to spend with each other. And they are such static images and almost interchangeable. I, I thought that fascinating as well, that, you know, you kind of have this special attention point of time and it's like if you if they weren't mentioning it if they weren't saying you know he's this late or we only have this time left or he'll be here for this part of the meal then i'm not sure that there's any way you could tell where you were or when you were within that the tableau being presented so i found that there was a lot of of interesting stuff going on in terms of 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 how the book could be read and how the the interplay between the text and the and the visual elements I gotta say uh, thank you, Joe, for suggesting this book. I think uh, mm. I think mm -hmm. for, worth, also, worth, worth also mentioning. I mean, just how well translated it is. It's um, and I, it's the amazing Anthea Bell, who I have met. She is the most incredible translator. She, she did all the all the work, of course, on on Asterix for a yes, start. Yes. Once brought in, of course. But just as a little side note about she when she she talked about her 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 
why she's so good at translating it is as a as a child, as a girl, her dad was the first person to set crossword puzzles in the Times, and each morning he would come down with new clues and test them out uh, on on her and her uh, 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 over the breakfast table and. As a way of you know, translation, so much of it is about la- lateral thinking and finding ways of translating often untranslatable jokes into 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 sort of convincing English so it doesn't sound like translation ease. And and Anthea makes this a pleasure to read. Of course, I think she's an amazing translator. Mm-hmm. Do you know who did the lettering on this? Because that's also quite excellent. And I'm not sure if Sempe himself redid it in English. Or... Yeah, no, I don't know about that. Yeah, uh, but yeah. that's the crucial part of it. That it isn't a computer font, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to move us on to another European release this was a suggestion of Paul's is the uh, anthology from uh, Blank Slate, uh, Nelson which... It's uh, a British release it's not European, modern (laughs) It's in Europe (laughs) I hate to tell you this (laughs) They even have the colors on the title pages Robin (laughs) Okay, it's another release that's not from America (laughs) Okay. Uh, Blank Slate, part of the uh, really kind of recent, um, I don't want to say explosion, uh, but it's there's a really great movement of uh, British publishers right now. Uh, Blank Slate, uh, No Brow, Self Made Heroes, Um, and this work. I guess, Paul, you can kind of give us a little bit of a background on this because there's kind of a lot to it. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an anthology, but not as we know it. Because I mean, one one of the problems with anthologies, as we all know, is that you know they've always you know there are bits you want to read, the bits you don't want to read. There are artists you like, and etc. So the way to get around this, uh, the thread is um, Rob Davis came up with the idea originally, and Woodrow Phoenix was his kind of co-editor to make it all happen. And it was a very hands-on editorial project. It's not something where just people go away and say, you fill a few pages. Uh, they decided that why don't we tell um, one character's life year by year and assign a year to each artist. And not Again, not just randomly, but trying to find artists who had an affinity for that particular time or that particular sort of progression in, in her story. And the story was not kind of pre-planned. I mean, it was it grew out of an opening two episodes by, by Rob Davis and Woodrow Phoenix, but then it goes on from there and, and becomes... It goes off in, unsurpri- in surprising directions, so it's quite a difficult thing, I think, for Rob and Woodrow to, to helm and coordinate. But uh, it's a, it's as a result, it is something where you can't, you know, leave out one of the episodes. You have to read the whole thing. It's an anthology which actually has a, a big, overarching, complete form, a complete story to it. Um, and it's not about Nelson, as in Trafalgar, as in Admiral Nelson, Kiss Me Hardy, and all that. It's actually about a, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's about a woman who happens to be called Nelson. Yeah. Um. Now, as far as editorially, did they, because there's a lot of different directions the work takes, or there's these themes that go through, and I think, Joe, you were wondering if it was done... Um, exquisite kind of corpse, corpse style. style. Yeah. Because they cite the exquisite corpse, and I think the uh, afterward, Woodrow Phoenixes, and I was wondering if, mm. were these done like a couple artists at a time? Were, was everyone working at it at once? Because I know there was, you know, some pretty tight editorial oversight over making yeah. sure the plot at least makes sense from person to person, but was it like, you know, two on two, then the next two, then the next, or like, no, do you I, know how... I think, I'm right in saying, that this was done one episode at a time, which has okay. made it even more of a challenge, of course, because they wanted to make sure that everyone, you know, was seeing, was, was coming in, was slotted in, and was building on what, everything that had gone previously. There was never a point where, sort of, say, two people were working on on the next two episodes, not aware of what was because 
clearly even there there'd be something they wouldn't be aware of you have to be aware of completely what's happened up to, up to the point you, you join the team as it were right because there's one I thought very striking part near the end that sort of mm. tipped me off to this where uh, very late in the game uh, Alice Duke does this story that uh, is set around the words yeses and no where there's like a yes and a no and that's the only dialogue in the uh, story and then uh, Posey Simmons who follows her directly just takes her style and just builds her entire very short story around exactly the sort of narrative scheme Alex Duke has set up as sort of a punctuation to what she had done before and that's that's pretty striking um, I, I, I'd like to see a little more of that going on in there but it was it was very interesting and sort of I suspect put, that is an unusual thing Posey if I remember I write, writing may have been slightly put in at, at a later stage she's perhaps one of the only un artist that was she was certainly put in at this point as a kind of possibly an addendum I think at okay. that point because there was there, there was <laughs> I was trying to help Woodrow and Rob get hold of Posey who obviously is a, one of our greatest comic artists uh, um, uh, but so to get her in that was a way of, of just having her do a single image across the spread yeah okay yeah because she's she's particularly well uh, integrated into the flow I mm. thought mm. Well, well, you know actually when I first when I first scanned the book and I was kind of flipping around and doing you know what? What uh, Paul says we probably maybe shouldn't do, which was just kind of sampling the book. It was actually that transition, that the Posey Simmons transition page, that made me realize that there was something going on, and actually made me stop and sit down and read the book front to back. I just assumed it was a a, a random anthology. I remember when I first read it, and then I was like, well, no, that's connected. So that was a very very strong connection. Joe, you're right. Mm-hmm. Now, mm -hmm. Paul, yeah, yeah. what was what was your particular choice in choosing this book? Uh, well, <laughs> we are on, on the on the Jubilee Diamond Jubilee weekend, so I could say I was I was going to wave my Union Jack flag here and celebrate Britishness and things. But I think that that was part of the point was that as as Woodrow and Robert Mob said, there is there's a lot of amazing talent uh, in the UK comic scene which has been put together in this anthology and it's you know it is quite a buzz that the book's been nominated for I think it's Front Eisner I think it's been nominated mm -hmm. which is, doesn't happen very often that anything that isn't US published gets even that that close to winning um, and because I think actually it's a very int an interesting approach to, to the anthology which I think is a very good model perhaps for others to think about because it does require strong editing but it brings it, uh, it, it, they, they do pull it off I think there are some challenges along the way there are places where you realize that I think Ian Colbard at one point introduces doesn't actually give you a complete episode but gives you leaves you with a uh, um, uh, a cliffhanger with a new character suddenly turning up out of the blue and I think I remember that this was something that was certainly unexpected was that the uh, one-eyed guy it was the the, one, the the girl in the class in the school at night. I'm just trying to flicking through it. Well, here we are. Yes, yeah, on page 72. At the end of just a, uh, a five-page episode from 1980, uh, and that does that did of course uh, leave, a, leave an open-ended element and a new character that would suddenly sort of spice up the story. And then the whole story kind of expands to accommodate her later on. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, uh, and so this is sort of planting something which I don't think maybe even Ian didn't, even Calvert didn't know what would come of it, but he was bringing this new element into the story. So it's a very, and I say, as, speaking as an editor, uh, having done you know, work on Escape magazine back in the 80s, I mean, this is this is a major challenge. I mean, I know one thing which, which I told me, it couldn't have been possible without, obviously, the internet, but particularly without Twitter. That was apparently how a lot of this was put together, and all the artists were kind of corralled and organized. But uh, and done it, it was done in an extraordinarily short time. So uh, it shows, I think, it just it, it is just just beyond the, <laughs> the work itself. It's an achievement in terms of coordination 
and, and, and editing the, the, the book is as good as it is yeah and I think what I respond to uh, best with the work uh, is something that even the occasional the occasional slight bumps in the narrative I think there, there's one yeah. vignette where uh, you know she's talking about how she thinks she's pregnant and then that just doesn't come up again at any point which of course you can just you know process by yourself and thinking well maybe she's exaggerating to her friend or maybe she she terminated the pregnancy or something but you can mm. accommodate that but I think even the the slighter bumps like that underlie what I found most interesting of the work at, uh, about the work, which is that it's kind of a, a show of the amount of uh, visual talent that sort of existed in the UK comic scene across uh, several generations, uh, which I think is you know understood by the editors as well as being a big point of this. As in the biographies, they have you know photos from all mm -hmm. of the contributors from across their lives and across the era, and it's sort of um, it's just showing you. And the visual quality overall is really quite good. There, there are honestly, I don't think any segments in this that are necessarily bad looking. It, it's a it's a very well done visual piece of work, and I think in that way it demonstrates how strong the UK comic scene could be in you know this big deluxe uh, format with this you know kind of sentimental rather familiar plot running through it uh which is sort of a a medium through which the um you know just a show of the strength and talent around could be i think you know, like... i was i was struck by the exact same thing and almost to the point of being depressed that um that there's that much talent over there that i don't know that is necessarily getting the same kind of um platform in order to make comics you know of this quality you know each individual on their own i mean it, it seemed it was slightly terrifying i mean there were so many really mm -hmm. visually accomplished cartoonists at work on this and i i wonder one thing i wanted to ask the both of you is that it seems to me that the that the concept of the book that the the year by year would seem to almost expose a weakness in terms, or, or, or it would seem able to expose weaknesses in terms of differences in talent. And I just wonder if it was it just so well selected that it didn't expose certain cartoonists as not being up to snuff, or was it? I mean, was it just that good of a crew assembled, or was it that something about the way that those stories were presented or were keyed to individual skill sets, kind of? diminish or, or, or mitigate those any weaknesses that they had. Do any of you have a thought on that? How, how was it that it came across so well as a group, do you think? Well, and Paul can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, uh, the artists were all writing their own segments as well with editorial guidance, is that correct? Yeah, there's, that's true. I think there's maybe, maybe one, I think Sean Phillips, who is not so much of a writer, worked with Pete Doré, I can tell you pronounce his name, but yeah, everybody else is basically uh, a writer-artist complete. Okay. Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. most of most of the artists here uh, were able to structure their own uh, piece to sort of play to their strengths. Like, for example, when Carol Swain is doing a chapter, it, it just looks, feels, runs, paces exactly like a Carol Swain comic in the tight grids mm -hmm. and the tight close-ups on people's faces. Uh, I think the... And this might be more into the miraculous section than anything, but I think the, the lineup of the artists manages to complement 
each other piece by piece well enough to give enough mm. variety that you don't become really, you know, deadened or numb to really similar styles happening. I think it's it's a little amazing in that way that it doesn't become visually monotonous at any point, which is ironically a real danger you can get from an anthology with a lot of people. If a lot of people are drawing in sort of the same way, that doesn't happen here, which is sort of amazing given that the piece was put together piece by piece, which means you'd have to get artists who have free time to follow each other and then read everything that went before. So it's it's definitely an accomplishment there. I'm not sure if it plays so much into the artists happening to be interested in this time period. I, I think that actually affects the story in sort of a negative way a little in that, um, and I don't know if this stuff ever played in Canada or Britain, but um, if Tom remembers those specials they had on TV, these television miniseries in the 90s called like the 60s, the 70s, do you remember those? Uh, I sure do. Yeah, yes. those were and, awful. And and at times the at times the story itself in Nelson comes off a little bit like one of those in that they're uh, the artists will bring up like some big event that happened in this particular time mm. or the characters will you know shoot a little exposition at each other uh, surrounding some some trend or something happening I noticed that happens a lot more at the beginning of the book so I kind of wonder if the editors realized that was happening and told the subsequent artists to tone it down a little uh, mm-hmm. but th- there is a little bit of that uh, sampling of history's greatest hits uh, going on in this very simple story about a girl who who wants to connect with her parents and find something going on in the world. And um, I think that's called gumping, I think is the actual... Yes, yes. There definitely is a scene where she's uh, mourning her, her dead uh, people she known who has died, and then she falls off a bar stool, and falling off the bar stool is intercut with scenes of the Twin Towers collapsing, so that there is a bit of that going on as well. Um but yeah, I think I think that may have also contributed to the, you know, the popping of the visual style as well, even if it kind of makes the narrative on the nose in certain passages, quite on the nose, in fact. Hmm. I mean, it'd be kind of difficult to do uh, 2000. I guess not put not put 9/11 in, I suppose. But you're right. There is well, a danger maybe of, of yeah, well, like over-egging it with, every, with with the big events. There's I should say, a lot I re- of, quite a lot of sorry, quite a lot of. of uh, you know, to, you know, the actual topical year by year kind of musical references and, and, and yeah. which I, I don't always get, but people assure <laughs> me there's a, there's, a, there's a lot in there. You could have a kind of um, appendices with all of the, the the music references, even a soundtrack for each for each yeah. uh, episode, each installment, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I should say I rather well, like. This... Inter- oh, go on, go on. But, well, I wondered if, if if the fact that this that this is a book for a charity. If uh-huh. that changes the way that the press would receive or would deal with something, a project like this in the UK, uh, it may have, may have, yeah, it may have just helped open a few doors. It has had some very, very good coverage. It's had big, big sort of, uh, spreads in the Guardian, Observer, and other places, and has been very well received. Um, but I don't think that that's not a big element behind it. I don't think. I think it is okay. because it's a very attractive showcase, and it and it's uh, making a real statement for saying you know comics in the UK have got an identity of their own. That's for me. And I know, you know, I've talked about with Woodrow and Rob, you know, this is part of the, the, the question right now, is that for most people, British comics equals, if it's not Alan Moore, obviously, these days doing much for America, it equals your Grant Morrison's and your, your Brian Bollins and the people working for, for DC Vertigo or wherever else, or for Marvel, of course, in which there's a huge next generation and another generation that's sort of all being sucked into that. And uh, there's a lot more to British comics than that. And we have our, we have our own culture. It may be a struggling one, uh, but we have a wealth of talent here. 
And the good thing is, is uh, you're quite right, it, it isn't easy for these people to get uh, to work on solo projects and bigger projects, but they are happening. We have, you've mentioned a few already, uh, Robin, but there are a few other publishers. Clearly, a key one is Jonathan Cape, which is part of the massive Random House Pantheon Circle, which who are putting out a lot of new UK talent. I mean, it's incredible what's coming through from them. And we have smaller specialist publishers like Myriad, who are... Uh, have run a first graphic novel competition and discovered still more talent. It's absolutely, it is, I mean, in one sense, it is like depressing, actually, as you were saying, Tom, because you sort of wonder, can all these voices find, um, not only get into print, but then find a public? It's an extraordinary time uh, for comics here. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a multi-level uh, reach, too. I was at the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival uh, late last year, and uh, No Brow was actually very, very popular and successful there. Yeah. I was told they have a great uh, reach with that kind of really hardline art comics audience so it, it's on it's a multi-layered thing yeah 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 it really is and uh i think the only danger is that is that um a lot of the, the promotion of, of what we've got over here still is very focused on your sort of uh jonathan ross america's got powers turf kind of stuff or martin millar mm. and nothing is any of that stuff at all but it isn't british even if it's created by british creators it, it very often doesn't feel like it's tapping into anything to, to do with our culture uh and our world of comics which uh uh, it is rich, and and uh, and it just struggles to, to to get noticed sometimes. So I, I'm I'm obviously I put this in because I wanted to talk about ahead of the Eisner Awards, so more people, listeners, go out and find it, and then I don't know how who votes for these things, but uh, maybe it'll get it to win. But it's great it's been nominated in the first place. I think. Mm-hmm. Were there any particular creators that any of you had not known before that really stand out? Um, we've talked about how there is a wealth of talent there, but I just want to kind of see if there's any names that that jump out. I had actually, I had actually not uh, realized him when I saw it, but uh, I really enjoyed the piece by uh, Paul Pert Smith, which is uh, yeah. set at a kind of, which is set at a kind of street fair, and it's a really gorgeous, uh, inky style. That only when I got to the back of the book did I realize that he did some uh, 2000 AD stuff. I believe he did one of John yeah. Smith's pieces in the uh, the Summer Offensive with Grant Morrison and Mark Millar. He did Slaughter Bowl, the one where they're riding dinosaurs and shooting machine guns, <laughs> and I, and and that that's great. He's he's developed so much since then. It, it's wonderful to see he's still working and at such an accomplished level now. So that that I'm was. So a big you mentioned, I'm so glad you mentioned him because he, yeah, he is somebody that was just, just waiting for him to get the crossover. Yeah, uh, and he's been realizing something on. I think it was on Activate, something like that, which was um, a really amazing graphic novel project. Um, I just just go go and sort of Google Paul Pert Smith and Activate, and you'll find it there. Um, I forget what it's called now. Where is it now? Anyway, he doesn't mention it in the. <laughs> it is really good. Has he mentioned it there? No, but it's a really really good um, project he's been doing online of his own writing and drawing. Um, so yeah, and he's very influenced by European comics. You can see kind of aspects of sort of Munoz and and Bluch and other people kind of blending in. He's a super mm-hmm. talent. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna move us on um, to Paul's other pick, um, "Are You My Mother" by Alison Bechtel. Um, a, another story of someone's life, but this time the story of the life of the the artist, the cartoonist Alison Bechtel and her relationship with her mother. Uh, I guess it's a follow-up to Fun Home, the story of her relationship with her father. Um, this one being very different. Um, Paul, hate to put you back on the spot. Tell us your uh, <laughs> your reason for uh, for choosing 
this particular Well, I work. guess one of the reasons was because I thought we hadn't got any women for a start in the list, so I thought it was extremely embarrassing that we're all blokes and we're all choosing blokey bloke. Well, there are, of course, plenty of women, actually, fortunately, in Nelson. There's a good number of them in there, but that was one reason. Um, and because I thought we, it's, this is a really meaty, substantial graphic novel, um, uh, uh, which I think is quite a, it's, it's quite a tough, challenging book. Um, it probably isn't, in some ways, perhaps quite as immediately accessible as, as Fun Home, it, it has one of the most unusual techniques, and I'm, I'm sure you've all experienced reading this, is the extraordinary approach it takes to hand lettering um, uh, quotes and, and whole passages from books and from letters. I mean, the entire, uh, she'll, I've never seen actually so like much text, hand lettered quotes from, from books. I've never seen it done before in such, to such an extent. Um, for myself, I will agree that it was a. Uh, a kind of hard to penetrate work like I could not I had a really hard time getting into it um, it it felt kind of like there wasn't a cohesive direction to the work like it felt like mm. there were about five different directions yeah yeah, to go in. yeah. I think it's the book is as much or the, the struggle of, the, of reading the book is also perhaps is reflects the struggle of Alison's had herself to kind of pull all of these conflicting feelings she has about her mother together. It's not as clear a narrative as just because her feelings about her mother are so much more complex. Um, and also, of course, it does do a lot of other very clever interweaving of uh, texts from other sources. Uh, Virginia Woolf, isn't it, I think, and this Donald, what's his name again? Donald um, uh, Winnicott, that's Donald Winnicott, the uh, psychoanalyst's uh, life and thinking and writing is also interwoven. And at times, there were pages where I was going, okay, this is Kind of the narration is doing one thing, the, the the images and the speech are doing something else. And how do I read this? I'm going to have to read it. I'm, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to have to just read <laughs> the, the the balloons and, the, and the, the pictures and go through the page and then go back because I can't. My head couldn't cope with switching back and forth between these two parallel things going on on the same page. It's a really it's a demanding book. There's no doubt about it. But it it is ultimately worth. <laughs> The effort, by it, it does, it, it gives you such an impact. I think as you as you as you do get through it. Robin, it raised, you feel, it, yeah. Oh, Rob, I, I wondered if Robin felt like it, was there a desire on your part that the book be edited differently? Did you feel like there was a, a lack of of clarity that a that a firmer or a or more active editorial hand might have drawn out of the work? Because uh, seriously, it's very difficult. I mean, two classic difficulties of 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 work of of this kind of work would be the you know the one that it's comics and fairly complex um, you know conception comics at that which is hard for an editor to handle or or to find an editor qualified to work with that material and also it's a book coming off of a very successful book which usually means a, a greater leeway or more hands off I mean were, were you actually kind well, of Wanting that greater clarity from it, did you not feel that there was that that editorial presence that you might have otherwise desired? I think first off, like you mentioned, it comes off another work, and the problem I have with this book is that you need to read the other book to read this in a, book. And in a lot I think, of ways, I think mm. it's almost a uh, an enormously complex uh, DVD bonus feature for Fun Home itself. You know, <laughs> that, that sort of transformed yeah. into its own gigantic thing. It almost feels like that at times. But go on, go on. Well, yeah, yeah. So there's that part which I think is a big weakness for the work. Like I think um, folks should be able to read it on its own. You shouldn't have to be dependent to read um, Fun Home. 
in order to read our Yeah, I think you probably you probably could read it without Funhome. There's a fair bit, of course, in the book about the making of and the process of making Funhome in itself, isn't it? So that's there. But uh, and enough is explained about it. You're right. Um, yeah. th- I would. I, mean, this, I don't. One know of the most I... admirable things that any. I mean. I mean. I don't want to uh, suggest that that's a, an automatic virtue because I think one of the most admirable things that any artist can do is to use the capital that they acquire from a successful project and push their work in a direction that's not, you know, a fun home too or fun in, in terms of the way that the work is perceived to actually take an artistic risk or to use, uh, you know, so I, I, I find that eminently admirable, but I just wondered what you kind of felt was it was the operative word here or, or sensation here. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily say uh, editorial um, overview, because like as I said, it's hard to find editors that could kind of grasp how the comics work. Um, but I do feel, I don't know, like, I, I don't know if I can put it into words, just how, like, I kind of felt like there's all these directions it goes in. And it, for me, it was ultimately unsatisfying in that there's these little things that she touches on that just kind of leaves dangles and they just kind of fall to the side. But there's also a part of me that kind of gets that's what the book was. Like, it's it's not an easy book for her to put together. It's It's not very cut and dry, like here's what happened, here's what's going on. It's more like, I don't know what this is. Like, and I mean, the book is a question, are you my mother? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the, quite, oh, the, the huge difference is that with Funham, of course, she's talking about, she's doing a story about her father who isn't around to consult or be affected by the story. In this case, she's, she's, you know, she's consulting with her mother a good deal, both about creating Funham during that process and also, of course, about the book itself. And uh, it's amusing that... that uh, uh, near the end of the book, uh, the, the mother's only comment basically is, "Well, it coheres," which, <laughs> which uh, is not exactly the greatest kind of positive reaction to the book. Um, uh, and it's, it's sort of it's it's not damning with faint praise, but I mean, it, it is because this is such a complex relationship. Um, and of course, it's also because it's a good deal about Alison's own life. It's about her own relationships, which are uh, multiple and complex, and and uh, seem to kind of. It's as much her autobiography as it is an attempt to uh, understand her mother's life and and how the, the two the two of them have interacted and how how much she's shaped in the same way that she's shaped by her father, how much she's shaped by her mother, and I th- they also the, I mean frankly a lot of it is a lot of um, uh, conceptual stuff from from the psychoanalytic side of things uh, that you know you have to I've never had to read quite so much hand-lettered quotes from complicated psychoanalytical texts before in a graphic novel so you know it, it's it's a bit of job and um, it it is a, it's not a, a, a text light uh, piece it, the structure of the book is interesting because you, as I think we all realise is that every chapter opens with uh, a dream sequence which is of course meant to uh, one way or another, color and, and form what we, what we go on to read. It, beca- it becomes becomes a kind of repertoire of symbolism throughout the, the book that she can draw on. And then every chapter also ends on a uh, a blank a black spread with one large telling panel highlighted, which gives you a a pattern to the to the chapters and allows you to sort of anchor yourself and kind of prepare for how the, sh- the chapter shape is going to work. But along the way, it does um, meander and deviate and go back on itself. Um, uh, considerably to the point where you, know, you really have got to, to, to take your time with it. This isn't something you can sort of whiz through uh, yeah. easily. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to... Oh, go on. No, go, you, go ahead, Joe. I, I, I was going to jump off that, I think, in two ways. First first of all, in that this is um, 
I think it actually might be interesting to approach this book in a sort of regimented way where maybe you only read one chapter at a time for like a day and kind of go through it that way and then you know there's seven days so you know it'll take a week and in that way you can kind of see how she's constructed each chapter as a sort of highly self-referential thing because Paul notes that Mm. this is different from Fun Home in several very important ways Uh, but it's also kind of an extreme expansion of the uh, approach to Fun Home too. It it's almost quintessentially what you'd call the difficult second album, not to put down Dykes to watch out for or anything, but in terms of graphic mm. novels. Uh, in that Fun Home was a uh, constructed narrative. It was um, it was also divided into chapters that sort of adopted an author that uh, she likes, um, that uh, she sort of riffs off for the course of the chapter, and it's all put together basically from her extreme uh, scrapbooking, from uh, everything's drawn from photo reference, and it's sort of cut and pasted together like a collage almost, but a drawn collage that she's you know drawing over from photos or archival material she's collected. Uh, Are You My Mother takes that sort of to the next level in that it's also narratively about the very idea of creating this kind of collage as a means of sorting out your psychological state. So the first chapter begins with a dream sequence, which ends with the very uh, pertinent image of her kind of collapsed into a fetal position in the bottom of a river, sort of returned to the womb. And then immediately two pages later, uh, Allison is saying to herself, you smarmy, self-indulgent, softless piece of shit um, sort of acknowledging what she's doing even knowing that you know just another page later she, well a couple pages later she's almost going to be hit by the same kind of truck that hits her father in front home uh, later in the chapter there's this really funny part where she's talking with her mother on the phone and then you realize that unbeknownst to her mother she's actually transcribing her mother's words on her computer which is is really really funny when you realize that fun home was put together from stuff she just happened to save in large part and now we see the act of saving which sort of comments on you know what she's doing to the people in her lives trying to take away things to paste together to sort of both complete her book and benefit herself. There's uh, a lot of references throughout the book of her being unable to complete this book and being unable to complete Fun Home itself. So it's it's taking the it, it's taking on a distinctly self-referential form on top of the already uh, already constructed nature of Fun Home itself. So it's very much an expansion of that technique to a point where I think the narrative itself is less clean, maybe less touching than Fun Homes was, but I think it's a really worthwhile experience too, uh, just sitting there and listening to her, trying to piece all this stuff together with, you know, a a certain amount of panache, knowing where to put, uh, knowing where to have images recur, knowing where to have uh, narrative moments kind of crop up again, but in that way, I think it might be better to to put this in almost a classic comic book serialization kind of way where you're reading it chapter by chapter. This might be the only graphic novel made as a graphic novel I've read in a while where it actually might work better as a serial, and so I found myself uh, wanting to serialize it. Joe, did you experience any of the kind of untethered... um... The, the fascinating reaction that Paul had where you, he was kind of searching for different ways to read it or, or considering different ways to read it. Did you experience any of that at all? 
No, I didn't, because I found much more so than Sempe would do. This is uh, a work of panels, and the panels show you uh, the narrative that's supposed to be happening. And so I personally just find myself inclined to follow the narrative through whatever way the artist is going to lead me. So I read through like all of the uh, all of the handwritten uh, quotes, for example, and she doesn't just quote it; she handwrites the entire page and then like puts a highlighter on the important yeah, parts that you're really yeah. supposed but, but did... to read. <laughs> So did you actually read the, the whole quote, the whole passage, not just the highlighted bit? Well, in in that time, <laughs> since she's... In theory, you could, of course, yeah. Of course you you could, could, yeah. I mean, I read all the text in Cerebus, too, but... Um, I was waiting okay. for the Cerebus reference. <laughs> oh, you knew it was coming. You knew it. But uh, in this point, she's deliberately, like, moving you towards this particular section. But yeah, I, I'd read the rest of it, too, uh, just because I find that enjoyable as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the one of the one of the, the challenges that we still have to get used to with with graphic novels, and and in that sense, Alison is a bit like like uh, our own Percy Simmons here is the amount of text that can be used and uh, within a comics page, which we're still not necessarily comfortable. I mean, most of the page, I'm looking through the book at the moment, and there are very few pages that are that, that are not pretty much you know solid with with text, with a lot of exposition, a lot of quite large captions. A lot of illustrations actually covered and obscured by text. Um, she doesn't seem to want to sort of celebrate the visual all that much in her work. It is right. a, a very written work, and in that sense, that's one of the reasons why Fun Home did connect with people uh, who come from the literary world. Is of course it had so much literature. With the whole sort of that was one of the things that bonded Alison with her father was their, their, the, the way that he introduced her to the world of literature. It's what's helped her cross over, I think, to a, a literary uh, readership that would otherwise not you know, be more wary of a more visual approach. There's no doubt that the fact she drops in Wolf and Winnicott here is going to you know, help her win over more um, sort of literary readers who feel comfortable with a, a very with a less visually impressive work and a very text, textual approach to comics. And I think that's simply the way it's going. I mean, it's one of the, the key directions that comics, I think, have to go because, because um, we shouldn't be afraid of text. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be afraid of words being used um, powerfully and, 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 and at, at, some, at some length in comics. Yeah, and I would say that... Um, uh, I should say that Alison Bedshell, she, Bedshell, she does... Uh, She's perhaps playing to her strengths in this way. Um, however, the writing she's doing in this is a very sort of uh, collaged, kind of uh, pasted-together work of uh, differing texts that I think is much more interesting and much more stimulating than your sort of stereotypical, poorly narrated, poorly drawn graphic novel that's just, you know, kind of dashed out there. I think she's doing really sincerely interesting things with the amount of text she has on the page. Although there was a bit early on, too, where she's... Uh, where she's talking about uh, transitional objects. This is in chapter two, and it's set against the scene of her like getting out of bed and her dog being really happy because he's going to get walked. And she she draws the dog in kind of a kind of a newspaper comic strip for better or worse kind of style. And I found it really interesting to see that sort of you know uh, uh, comic strip like style juxtaposed against this really heavy psychoanalytical theory. So occasionally the words and the pictures work together in that way to please me. But, you know, it, it is it is a texty. A texty. I like that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move us on again um, to another autobiographical work. Uh, this time uh, one of Tom's picks, uh, Cruising with the Hound uh, by uh, 
underground comics great uh, Spain Rodriguez. Um, Tom, you've been on a particularly strong uh, rant of how much you love uh, Spain recently during the kerfuffle dealing with other comics. Um, why, why this book? Why Spain right now? Well, why Spain right now and why this book? Well, I mean, the basic reason is that this is the right now Spain book. This is actually a, n a newer book and is widely available. And I was actually slightly horrified to find that a lot of his books, even My True Story, the collection, kind of what I would consider the prime Spain Rodriguez book, um, which I think was around 94, 95 when that book came out. That book is, is really hard to find and, and not easy to find cheap unless you see it in a you know comic shop kind of buried underneath, you know, probably having been there since the mid-90s. Um, but to actually find that online or to order it is, is kind of a tougher thing. So uh, this being, um, you know, a, one of his autobiographical lead tinged or, or, or straight up autobiographical works actually but, but this is a this is an accessible work and it's something that people can go out and experience right now with some ease to it uh, as to why i'm i'm just interested in this work i i kind of wonder you know i'm kind of fascinated by the undergrounds generally and how we process those guys and how we deal with those guys because they're all very they're older men now and they kind of became older men without us kind of, um, I think, valuing them along the way, or the kind of the long afternoon of their careers. And I think that Spain, as a as a cartoonist, was very active in the 1990s and and remains active, you know, this over the last decade. And this work is is mostly early 90s and, and middle 1990s work. And I, I wonder that we just haven't paid those guys the proper respect um, that they're due, just in terms of 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 engaging with them as cartoonists. And Spain, in particular, I think is a is a fully formed cartoonist. He's not one of the underground guys that kind of wandered into comics and then kind of wandered off, or that does one thing better than than kind of classic skills. If if there is a, you know, there's a, a baseball term. Uh, sorry, I apologize, Paul, but you know, where they talk about a five a five tool player, a player that has all of the skills, and I think Spain kind of counts in that in that way that he has, he's a fully realized talent he does all of the comics things pretty well his work is visually interesting and his structures are the structures of his stories are ambitious and the way he uses the pages are 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 worthy of note and he kind of draws on on narrative strengths that I don't think a lot of of cartoonists have so you know I kind of think he's a perfect window into that whole underground generation as a, as a guy that was you know maybe you know one of the more active of those guys and kind of i hope that it, it that in general that we can start talking about you know the body of work of a lot of those great cartoonists now that they're into their 70s or, or late 60s at the very least um you know this work in particular i, I just find kind of funny and 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 joyful it's blokey bloke comics for sure, um, <laughs> they're very guy comics. Very it's a lot of yeah. it's a lot of drinking and a lot of anecdotes in bars and a lot of um, you know encounters, violent encounters and encounters with police. But it's all very kind of authentically done, I think. And I think that the the details of the observation and and the use of of um, the use of the 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 focus character kind of 
in the same way, kind of similar to the Dahmer book, there's a a way to focus on this milieu by by picking the guy who kind of most not doesn't fit into it. And I think that that kind of forces a discipline on Spain to be as exacting as he can in the other details. Otherwise, it will come across as kind of an untethered, unfocused work. So I, I found that very interesting about reading all of these comics at once, that there's this kind of um, focus on the oddball that kind of grounds the rest of the story when you, you think that the, that the opposite might happen. But that's, that was my thinking in, in order to introduce it. Uh, this, I, I just kind of, I feel like these guys are neglected in terms of critical attention generally, and, and Spain may be specifically amongst those guys. And, and the later work of Spain, perhaps uh, uh, even more than that. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on, um, Tom, uh, about Spain. And, and uh, I think this, this collection is great because it does give you... Um, uh, an insight is into his background. He's had he's 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 come from uh, quite a wild sort of side of of, of life in America. And uh, and places I'm just keeping one two pages here. Well, there's a page here where he's on a bike and he's. It almost made me think he kind of you can see the trash man. His sort of iconic character in many ways was a kind of clearly a, a, a sort of a, a fanciful sort of mythologization of whatever mythologization of, his, of himself, a kind of fantasy of what he could have been himself. He was already into the, the whole biking fraternity and the leather jackets and things. And he has an interesting style because, of course, I mean, we know he kind of taps into EC comics, particularly, I'm thinking, of course, Wally Wood is, the, I think, is one of the key key figures. Um, and that comes across in the, the great drawings of chrome and bikes and all that kind of stuff, the shading mm-hmm. and things. And in places, you'll notice, I noticed just going through that occasionally, um, I'm looking at this page here where he's drawn himself the quite a lot of detail and looking quite kind of uh, um, well, like, like, like a, almost like a, like a, a sort of a movie star in a way in his leather jacket, looking very tough. And then in, in the adjacent panel, uh, you've got actually a deliberately kind of simplified, just literally almost pure line. There's hardly any uh, shading or black areas of black at all for a less important sort of scene. It's clear that what he's doing here, he's working, these obviously stories appeared of course in Blab originally and I, I guess the page rate isn't huge there and he's going to invest the energy into what he wants to draw and sometimes if it's getting the story forward he will simplify and do a lighter style. Uh, and, uh, but it's it's very, very strong work and uh, and I think the, the, the problem with always looking for the next young talent coming through is we do forget that we're at a privileged time where we have got artists in their 50s, 60s, 70s still working. And as we know, I mean, from Eisner's example alone, um, it isn't, not everyone's career has to taper off and decline. That's the, that's the cliche of how, how, how any creative person, person's life works out. Very often it can be a gathering of wisdom and, and a technique and, and, and insight that means that your later work is perhaps your very best work. Well, that, on a little side note, one of the interesting things for me I found out from uh, the interview in the back of the book is he didn't start cartooning till he was 27? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty late, yeah, isn't it? I yeah, to, I, want to say, I want to say that's right, yeah. Yeah, and that, that really astonished me because, like, I don't know, most folks I see nowadays in comics, is they're very young and getting started really young. Um, and for folks getting started later, it's like almost like a crutch that, like, you're starting comics now, really? Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Well, I wanted to add one more thing just before I forget, which is that I, one of the things that, that I, I thought was interesting about this work is, uh, as an autobiographical work is he leads off with the old 
a story about the Cold War, and there's a, a very short comic, but and, and it kind of doesn't match up with the rest of the book, except in the case that he kind of talks about what on-the-ground experiences are like, as opposed to the kind of received wisdom that you get from culture, mm-hmm. and that his 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 experiences in kind of, you know, actually going to the Soviet Union at one point, or experiencing worker culture, or becoming a worker himself, were very different than the messages he got as a kid about the culture and how he kind of received them. So that once you get that, it, it, it's this really kind of clever framing sequence for the rest of the book, which is all about these kind of the raw kind of uh, uh, digital, or the kind of the, the raw experience of these of these these life events for him, which are presented without much in the terms of, of con- you know, and, and this is how I learned this is not a part of Spain's stories. It's just kind of um, these these narratives that, that kind of walk you through the specific experience that he had. So I, I thought that that was a very interesting way to do it in a very deft way that at least this book works, even if only by accident, to kind of put the value on or put a value on just getting these stories which are of course you know funny and entertaining and have all of those virtues as well I mean, they're kind of a blast um in kind of this you know kind of crude very funny very exciting way but just to show you know how our experiences kind of undergird the rest of our lives um i thought that was a a nice grace note or about the book well, speaking of received wisdom, I think, uh, and this is maybe a side effect of not an enormous amount of Spain's work being even in print now, I don't think. I mean, you, you can find it, of course, but, you know, sitting around with this much of his art really underlines exactly how much he's working off of the EC tradition, and particularly the kind of horror-ish EC tradition. Like, I'm thinking of this wonderful page, a splash with insect panels in the egg lady story, where all the egg ladies are hatching out from out of an egg, and, like, sort of pasted on top of this is these, like, bulging eyes that are watching, like, the egg lady approach. And I think uh, if you look at the traditional narrative of uh, the underground comics, there's almost a dichotomy that gets drawn between the people who liked EC, as in Harvey Kurtzman and Mad, which is Art Spiegelman and Bill Griffith, and then the the people who like the horror and genre stuff, which is like Richard Corbin and Greg Irons, and it's really good to see uh, a big stack of work that reminds you that, you know, Spain, some of this stuff is actually from Zap as well as Blab, and this is one of the Zap guys who is nonetheless working through a real kind of, let's say, genre comics style, which he's applying to these uh, really popping uh, autobiographical stories, which occasionally, and maybe you don't agree with me, Tom, but it, it's almost Dennis Eichhorn-like at times, isn't it? Like sure, this kind of... Uh, sure. Yeah, this kind of... Uh, you know, sort of true, but it like true stories told in an almost tall tale kind of way that sort of amble around, like introducing a character at the beginning of a story and then showing just a bunch of anecdotes that happen and kind of coming back to that character at the end. It's um, uh, it's a real energetic kind of look, and um, you know, even just seeing a bunch of like short stories that, while they cohere as an autobiographical comic, are still essentially short stories that give you a pointless look at the era. It's not specific in the way that you can that you can even tell how old Spain is in a lot of these stories. I was surprised to look at the 
I was surprised to look at the interview in the back and find out that he's like 13, 14 years old in a bunch of these. And I think Gary Groth, who does the interview, asked him how old he was because he didn't actually know either. And But it's not that kind of specificity he's going for. It's this sort of general atmosphere that kind of blips into being with these vignettes. And that's kind of collecting those is almost an, an older style of collection of comics. Even looking at the design of this book, it sort of looks like an older Fantagraphics book, doesn't it? Like, yeah, um, no, Jim Thompson pulled it out, and actually, that's the first thing he said. He said it looked like a book that we did 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, and, and, uh, it, it, and it feels like it, too. The, the content feels like it, but, you know, it's still very immediate art that I'm glad is out there. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's actually it, we're, we're, we're somewhat in we're somewhat brain new to autobiography, of course, and, and we've just discussed... You know, Are You My Mother, which is an incredibly dense, complex... And, oh, the, the, this and, book is like the opposite is, of Are You My Mother. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It really is. It's, it's extremely accessible and, and entertaining, but it has a... a, a I think it's, it's a really evocative, it seems to me, anyway. Uh, yeah, do you, I, I shouldn't, didn't get around to reading the interview at the back of the book, and I wonder, did, did people think that was a necessary thing? It's kind of slightly puzzling to me that there's actually quite as much of this interview at the back of the book, um, which you don't necessarily... Is it necessary? Is it something that the book wouldn't, would, would, wouldn't work without? I think... I, I, I do oh, feel oh. it's filler. Like, I would rather see them do a book like this uh, and maybe uh, fill it up with, say, uh, the the book Tom was talking about earlier, like My True Story or something, to really... Because, yeah. I mean, there, there's so much that would relate to this. So you could do, here is a book of Spain autobio work. Like, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's, it's pleasurable. It's a pleasurable interview, just like, I mean, Spain's an interesting guy and carries a good interviewer and it's fun, but what, is it necessary to the book? I don't think so. I think fact, it, uh... I, skipped, I skipped it, to be honest. I think it fills in the parts of the book that the rest of it doesn't cover, almost in a way to, to bring it into a more contemporary uh, autobiographical comic style, just, you know, letting you know when all this stuff is supposed to be happening, like when he was a biker, like how this narrative fits together, because the nar a narrative doesn't really fit together in a novelistic sense from the rest of it. I do kind of suspect there is a more pragmatic idea behind it, because uh, cutting those old comics journal special comics that used to be in a gigantic book that you can, like, hide yourself from society behind, and cutting them into pieces and, and putting them on top of the interview basically makes it legible so there, there might have been uh, an idea there too yeah. what do we do in, in, in the blank spaces around it so that that's kind of solves that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, shall I move on to the next work Anyone have any Maybe we comments? should just just mention we should just mention I think that there were there was great optimism about um, Spain's Che Guevara um, biography, you know, biographic novel, as you may know, that came out a few years ago. It came out over here from from quite a left-wing publisher, Verso, and uh, I managed to get Spain together with Spiegelman and Shelton for a kind of three-way discussion about it. But it didn't, unfortunately, kind of be become the best-selling breakthrough breakout book that it could have become. And didn't didn't? Am I right in saying, Tom, that, that I mean, I heard that Spain was doing another um, biographical book um, about an American general or something. Did you, do you know about that one? You know, I don't know exactly about it. I know that he's working on a few projects and maybe not really committed to any one, maybe. I'm not well, sure. Still, oh, okay. I, I also like his Nightmare Alley adaptation that came out like oh, 2005, yes. 2006. I thought that was hmm. a lot of fun and, uh, you know, for an adaptation was, a, was a, a kind of a very visually interesting work and very accessible in the way that a lot of the best of Spain are. 
Yeah, that's a good one. That one was supposed to be part of the uh, Raw line, wasn't it, originally? With the, I think uh, originally, the, yeah. Neon, neon Lit, yeah, Neon Lit line. Was it, yeah, it became part of that, in the, along with City of Glass. Yeah. And maybe hmm. I should make mention, um, Spain does have a Kickstarter, or there is a Kickstarter that Spain is involved in right now. What is he? Oh, right. What's that for? Is it a new project? I, I think, that's, for, one, uh, I think yeah. that's one he's the artist on. Other people are writing it. Sure, and it's a Joan of Arc story, modern times, I think, maybe. So, yeah, more Spain, however we get Spain, I think, is a, is a good thing. And I think just a general, as uh, Tom mentioned earlier, kind of respect of the underground movement. I know uh, when uh, Jack Jackson um, passed away, what, five years ago, it it, it didn't I didn't really feel the impact and I think we're finally we're gonna start seeing some of his work and just see how important uh cartoonist he was. And I think there's a lot of folks that we just aren't really recognizing that we'll see more work of being reprinted soon and hopefully we'll kinda shift the dialogue a little beyond well, the, you know, I the that, staples. I thought that the Diane Newman book was very interesting that that came out a little bit earlier this year that, you know, as as, as far as a later figure in that in that movement. And I D. thought D. that you know, kind of yeah. a, the D.D. Glitz book, in terms of you know, yeah. you just see the you just see the how much those cartoonists were making up entire ways of doing comics, um, or kind of going you know to the to the well because there wasn't that connection or there wasn't that easy access to a lot of other works, and to see you know them constantly inventing or reinventing genres is, is a fascinating thing to see in, in collections. So I'm very glad um, when we get them. That Newman one especially was interesting because you, yeah. she's working from something different than all all these guys who all kind of are tapping into something similar. And her work was just, it's coming from this other direction and it's just so much going into the artwork itself that I wasn't seeing in the male counterparts. Sure. There's a parallel also, of course, with, uh, yeah, and there's a parallel also with, with uh, Cruising with the Howard because these are, these are kind of disparate pieces that we haven't realized when they do pull together they become something much more I mean clearly I mean I hope we both I think both Spain and Diane Newman were both kind of can, they were conceiving these works on the hoof as it were and here's the next story here's the next story but they do pull together in, in book form to become something really quite coherent and, and compelling I think hopefully we'll see uh, more works like this I would love to see a Justin Green collection of all his anthology shorts yeah yeah that's a good idea definitely Someone, please, just saying. Um, the 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 next one on my list is uh, Joe's other choice, and I kind of feel it. It's a good follow up to Spain. Is uh, my friend Dahmer by uh, Mr. Durf back Durf, um, stylistically taking a lot from uh, Spain or influenced a lot from Spain. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Spain's yeah. A, Spain's a pretty yeah he's a pretty pertinent influence. It's it's kind of um. Well, you can call it an underground style. It seems, uh, and maybe this is just a subconscious thing I can't adequately explain out loud, but uh, it's very much of the uh, alternative weekly sort of, uh, you know, alternative comics era style that I think Backdurf works in. That's certainly how it seems reminiscent to me, uh, these kind of big uh, lean figures. But anyway... Um, yeah, my friend Dahmer is not really an expansion, but there was a smaller comic he did a while ago, uh, also called My Friend Dahmer, uh, which Backdurf wasn't particularly happy with, but 
which became kind of a big thing. I believe Chuck Klosterman mentioned it in one of his books, and uh, a lot of people read it. And this is sort of a long take on the same material, which is basically a biographical slash autobiographical book about how Bacter went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer. And this, uh, to contrast with Cruise and with the Hound, is very much your modern sort of novelistic, uh, at times cinematographic styled, uh, straightforward narrative that lasts for a graphic novel length. There's moments where there's no text on the page where, you know, important things are going to happen. There's careful bits of pacing and full page splashes for when someone is punched, for example. It's uh, a very smooth and slick read. Uh, but what really jumped out for me with this and, um, I'm not sure this is the reason the book has gotten a lot of attention, but I think it's an important thing nonetheless, is how it's this this really visceral and I think incredibly authentic portrait of how kind of loser guys and slightly less loser guys than them interact in a, uh, in a place like high school where Jeffrey Dahmer is this dude who does weird things in class. He just yells things in the middle of class. He pretends like he's uh, mentally disabled, and these other kids, Backdurf, one of them sort of adopt him a little bit, and, you know, they, they kind of make him into a cartoon. Backdurf literally makes him into a cartoon for things he draws at school, so the kid becomes, in a way, sort of popular, but also in a way sort of dehumanized and made into sort of a funny joke that everyone could enjoy. The irony being that this is still the most attention the kid gets. There's this really kind of uh, risible segment where they take him to the mall and they just have him act up at the mall following along and laughing uh, and at the same time you get the impression that you know this is the most fun that maybe a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer who's so socially inadept is going to have and Backdurf is completely unafraid of making himself look like a complete asshole in this book and he does rather come off like a complete asshole and in a way later on in the book when there's uh, everybody's graduating school. Almost the entirety of the book is sent, set during high school. He has this scene where, you know, him and his friends are sitting at a pizza parlor and kind of talking about all the great things they're going to do, you know, when they get to college and how they're going to have this freedom. And you can tell they don't really care that much about this kid that they've sort of been friends with, sort of laughing at at the same time. And then it's just juxtaposed against the total misery of Jeffrey Dahmer's situation and the reader's own understanding of how completely awful he's going to get. And then um, there's this wonderfully horrible punctuation in the epilogue where uh, Bachdorf reprises this scene where he and his you know, fellows from school are once again sitting around the table and it just ends with them laughing over the idea that Jeffrey Dahmer is probably going to be a serial killer and his caption just reads, and we all laughed and that's the end of the book because, you know, that that's exactly what happened. And then he has a little post-epilogue later on where Dahmer isn't even the first kid he thought from his class who might become a serial killer. But that sort of examination of the interactions between guys in high school, between friends and semi-friends in high school, I found really, really vivid and extremely well done. It's definitely what jumped out at me most in this book. And I don't know if anyone has a different uh, take on that. Well, you know, I had the exact same reaction in that I thought that was the most affecting part of the book. As someone who grew up in a similar Midwestern community about you know eight years after those guys, 
Mm-hmm. The atmospheric details, I think, were also very affecting. The The idea that a lot of the isolation that someone like Jeffrey Dahmer felt was the simple fact that these communities were isolated and that everyone kind of was kind of connected by you know, either having a car or not having a car, and they spent a lot of their time driving around. Um, the idea that there were these uh, nearby wooded areas, because these are, you know, developments that were probably newer, that were, you know, an easy place for someone like Dahmer to have access to or to retreat to in order to have some quiet time, I thought was very um, kind of spookily dead on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought that he got that right. And, you know, Durf did a, a high school story. His last graphic novel was a high school story. I don't remember the name of it. And it was more of a, a kind of a comedic look or kind of at a character type rather than a, than a, than this. And I, I just thought this work was so much more fascinatingly focused and you know, for that kind of that main through line, I think, and that the the details were just so much more powerful. And that you're right, he was kind of unsparing in that indictment of those things. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that stuff landed registered a bit more than I think what the book is getting a bit more recognized for was as a more general indictment of uh, you know uh, absentee adults and uh, I guess the general. Yeah. My Lou of the area uh, growing up in the Midwest, growing up in a cultural dead zone. I, I think Bachdorf is a lot more effective when he's specifying Dahmer's interactions with other kids of his peer group inside that area. And honestly, I think that's what the majority of the book is actually about, what most of the text focuses on. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's clear there's, there's, a, there's a, 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 a very strong critique here that this didn't, this didn't have to happen this way. If there would have been some way of, of, of at, at school, for one thing, someone should have noticed what was going on amongst the staff or whoever it should have been. And similarly, one would have hoped that in, in his territory, think, I think actually that Bacteriff expands, as I can recall, on, on the comic book he, uh, considerably on, the, on Dharma's family situation, which we don't get as much insight from from the original comic book. And that has... Mm-hmm. That clearly, in other circumstances, there would have been some way of helping someone in this situation. That's the huge tragedy of it, that if only someone could have noticed what was going on. Um, I guess, having read the original, my, my, my friend Dharma comic book, I put it in my <laughs> my book about incredibly strange comics, or uh, the world's weirdest comics, whatever, that came out a year or two ago, deliberately because I thought people would go, what is this, my friend Dharma, that was going to be a horrible, you know, nasty comic. And of course it isn't. It kind of slightly plays on that. You expect something more... Sort of explicit or horrible about it, but of course it is much more subtly horrifying. In fact, as we know what's going to happen, we don't need to see anything at all, and it's this horrible normalcy of, of um, so-called normalcy of, of, of American high school life, um, which makes it all the more chilling that, that he could come out of that. As with the, with the Spain, we've got uh, some some text at the back of the book, extra stuff, and. Um, he's got some footnotes. Along the way, I think uh, Bakhtev talks about the fact that he's clearly in this book expanded considerably from the from the original sort of pamphlet comic book, which I thought was great, by the way. Um, he's gone into territory where he, of course he, he couldn't have witnessed a lot of the stuff that that uh, Dharma was experiencing at home. He's having to find out from relatives and other people to find out what happened. And that clearly is a challenging thing where he's taking it away from his personal interaction with with Dharma. And there's a very great scene seeking interaction, which I don't, again, think was in, wasn't in the original comic, maybe it was, I can't remember, but they opening a chapter, part two, where uh, they're fishing together and, and Dharma suddenly has this kind of violent um, fit, just sort of calming up her, 
a fish in a moment of frenzy and then just saying, I just want to look what it looked like, see what it looked like, is a, is a very chilling uh, sequence in, in that chapter. I just, I mean, that the, uh, this is, this, this is important, though, of course, that, that that just being able to take what was otherwise you know, a fairly lightweight um, oddity, this little pamphlet, and be able to get Abrams' comic arts behind it to make it into a, the, 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 the substantial graphic novel that it, it, it cried out to be. Tom, I don't know if we've heard a lot from you on this book. I can't remember. Well, no, you know, I talked a little bit about how I thought that the, you got the atmospherics of it down, and that I thought it was a generally strong work and kind of unsparing um, work in that sense. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I also think, you know, one of the things, I, and I, I wonder if, if the other two gentlemen could 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 talk about this or or to kind of, I, I wanted to ask this, which is, I don't know if it, if the style of it, and and Joe kind of talked about the style of it. If I just got used to the style of it or if it actually if he modulated his style in the later chapters because I remember when I first read when I first started reading it I thought I might actually have problems with the kind of overtly cartoony element of it mm. and there's an old Gary Gross line about he had a hard time reading Stuck Rubber Baby because he thought it was like Don Martin drawing Mouse which <laughs> yeah, is incredibly and, 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 and this and, is all and there are elements right, I mean this is a very yeah, serious this is a very serious story, but there, you know, he has a very um, kind of uh, visually dramatic, or there's a lot of visual flair, very a lot of cartoony elements to it. And I didn't know, I don't know that I, I either got used to it or it, or he, or he, he tamped that down. But I remember thinking that that might be a problem reading the book. Was that, was there any kind of visual mismatch for for either of you guys or any of you guys? I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, looking at it as I'm at the moment, it, there is a certain some of his anatomy is a bit strange. It's a bit of strange kind of stiff action figure kind of style, and the, there is a quirkiness to it. This is nothing like as 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 rent, so realistically rendered as, as say the work of, of Spain I would have said. But it does you you get past I can imagine it's the thing which might put people off initially. They would think this is gonna be this isn't professionally drawn or realistically drawn, whatever they're expecting. But that that doesn't get in the way finally at all, because the subject is so powerful and uh, and pulls you in. And the writing is extremely convincing. So yeah, I don't think. But you're right. Uh, it's it's not an art style I I personally find terribly appealing, but I can't see any reason to 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 want it to be drawn in any other way in the end because it's uh, it does the job very effectively. He does dial down on some of the cartoon elements a little, like the the one teacher's skittering legs when she's walking around the library. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I was saying there's kind of a an almost Fred Hembeck look to some of the characters, but the way I think that Bachdorf sort of sort of molds the characters' bodies as kind of like collections of lumps and uh, and uh, shadows yeah. and stuff. I, I think it eventually becomes very affecting, especially his drawings of Dahmer, who's you know kind of a big uh, muscular guy, and he's sort of constantly mm. coiled in this like almost you know dangerous-looking rage style. And um, and yeah, I, I think I think that fits the uh, style of narration quite nicely. Um, yeah. I think also, please, go ahead, Tom. Uh, no, something also sticks, stuck with me when I read the book was that there's a little bit of ambivalence that comes through about his about his uh, his feeling towards Dahmer. I mean, there's a whole understated element that he kind of feels that um, this kind of critique that if Dahmer had had the same kind of friends that he had, that he was missing out on those friends, then he would have 
you know, he doesn't come quite out and say that that might have mitigated some of his his problems. And in fact, you know, at the same time, in the tech section, he has a lot of 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 uh, kind of negative feelings towards towards Dahmer. You know, talks about that he was a victim up until he he killed the the first young man, and after that, you know, his his problem was that he didn't have the courage to kill himself, which is an incredibly strong statement. Um, and kind of runs counter to in some or could be seen as running counter to this incredibly sympathetic portrait uh, this empathy that he feels for the the isolating high school experience that Dahmer had so i wondered if, if any if either of you had, had any thoughts as to the kind of ambivalence or where he kind of places himself he's certainly not afraid to show himself as a jerk but ultimately do you think he has resolved his kind of position vis-a-vis this this kind of you know tragedy in the making that that eventually well, happened. In a way, even in the text of the uh, the text of the comics itself, I felt he's there's almost more of a sense that he's that he's upset with himself for the lack of things he did or what he's done mm-hmm. than necessarily empathetic with Dahmer himself. D- despite the fact that there's a number of scenes of Dahmer alone, of Dahmer sulking in the woods and kind of you know sitting around or trying to be normal, I. Um, I, I didn't get an enormous amount of empathy towards Jeffrey Dahmer in the book, just an attempt to understand him, maybe as, as a, a means of mitigating the fact that he never really understood him when he was a student. It's that That's why I'm moved to call this an autobiographical slash biographical comic, because it is very, very, very much about Dirk Vachter, uh, as much as it is about Jeffrey Dahmer, and some would say that as a tremendous negative for a book such as this. I don't necessarily think it is, but I think there's uh, certainly a duality to it that works in that way. Mm. I mean, in this passage too, he says, I'm often asked why I never spoke up, why I didn't try to get Dahmer help. You have to remember, this was 1976, you never knocked on a classmate. It simply wasn't done. Besides my friends and I, we were just clueless small-town kids wrapped up in our own lives, and none of us had a hint about what was really going on in his head. A better question is, where were the damn adults? And, I'm, and as you mentioned, that this book, if it does kind of raise... Uh, some hackles and some issues right now, that's a good thing, surely, because uh, <laughs> this shouldn't happen again. It may happen again, but there must be ways now for, for uh, in the, in, here we are 2012, to, to learn from what happened and to hopefully get schooling and, and family counseling and this kind of stuff to help help someone like this. One just has to hope. Um... I was going to say something, but it jumped out of my head. Uh, what I, what it was is uh, it, the particular choice to do it in black and white, um, which, you know, when you're doing a book for, say, a big publisher like Abrams, the, they'll have the money to cough out for color. Um, but a lot of indie publishers may not be able to do that. And, and I'm happy that he chose to stay with black and white. It seems like there's never a choice to do color, but some people may want to see, oh, this would make more money if it was in color, it'd be more appeal or something, and the black and white I think helps the service towards Well, just the moldy, uh, molded look of the characters I mentioned yeah. before, that pops way better in black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying, I don't even think have I, I don't, have we, has there has he done a color comic all the way through? I mean, what, I don't... Durf, Durf he has lots online. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, he, so I, I sometimes don't. I, didn't, I sometimes don't carry the memory of whether something's in black and white or color with me um, as I should. 
which is probably a, a massive shortcoming in the way I'm processing these these books. But sometimes I can't remember. Um, I think I'm gonna move us on to our last book of the stack. Um, speaking of color. Speaking of color, uh, very beautiful color, color book. Yeah. Uh, the Shark King by uh, R. Kuko Johnson, whose previous work in black and white, The Night Fisher from Fenographics, was a stellar uh, debut work for a very young cartoonist. Um, work I really loved and uh, the shark knife is uh, I'm not going to say it's a follow up work because it has nothing to do with the other work other than it's set in Hawaii um, a release from uh, Toon Books uh, Francois, Francoise Mouly, uh her series of books for children um, fantastic series Tom you chose this tell us why two basic reasons I chose and one you just hinted at which was that this is a this is our, our follow-up work um, in terms of the order, you know, that they were published. This is the first major work, at least that I can remember putting my hands on for Johnson. And it is not uh, really, uh, it's hard to kind of, uh, kind of figure it out as a follow-up work. And I wondered if, if the other critics drew any kind of relationship between this work and that previous work, or if that's even necessary, or if that is something that we do critically as a crutch. I mean, is it is it necessary that we kind of draw these these comparisons? And I also wondered, and, and one of the reasons I chose it, was that I thought that the Tune Books experiment is kind of interesting generally, and that, and the thing I find interesting about it is that Francoise has very circumscribed um, there are certain editorial policies that are that have a definite impact on the way the works are read in terms of how what kind of language is used and how many words are used and how which one of the books is directed at which kind of readership she was very she has been very explicit in directing the books in that way and that making sure that they are educationally viable and i kind of wondered about that as a model for Doing kids' works or you know for artwork more generally, as opposed to kind of uh, you know my my uh, you know my impulse, which is that you know you let creators do whatever it is they want to do, and um, they'll either find the readership that they that they deserve or they won't. You know to kind of leave that up to the to the creator as opposed to editorial dictate. And so you know, and, and considering we're, uh, since Paul was going to be here, I know that when we talked about the absence of avenues or venues for a lot of the British talent. I, my suspicion is that, there, or my impression is that there's a lot of of interest in British kids comics, and that you know certainly some of the people in Nelson, such like like Sarah McIntyre, might be better known for that kind of work. And I, I just wondered, you know, that's kind of an interesting avenue for people in kind of building careers that sustain careers in a different model that we have now. So I was kind of interested in kind of drawing impressions from the other critics on those two issues, the kind of disconnect between, you know, projects that a cartoonist like Johnson might have and also the idea of, of editorially directed kids' books and kids' books generally as a as a artistic option for uh, cartoonists. Yeah, it's quite so like I, kind I of top and telling you've done here because in a way we, we came in with uh, Monsieur Lambert which comes not really from the comics world but from the world of kind of cartooning and, 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 and as you say with the children's book that's often sidelined and not, really, not every comic shop is going to be getting the tune books in necessarily they'll all be that aware of them and 
it's a very important initiative that Francois is trying here, because I think within the worlds of uh, world of literacy and the theories about how kids can be made to read, there's been a lot of, um, and I believe she had quite a struggle to get her Toon Books project off the ground. And of course, initially she was doing it herself, financing it herself. She's now linked up with Candlewick Press, which is quite a powerful uh, publisher of children's books. But there was a lot of distrust within the um, children's book world that actually comics were the right way to get kids into reading, whereas of course most of us, probably all four of us here tonight, you know, comics were stuff that we were reading when we couldn't read, when they were, they were things that we were that encouraged us to become the readers that we are. Um, and I think, yeah, interesting point, Tommy, that it's clearly not going to be the sort of project where um, Johnson can sort of just run. He's, there are constraints. There are going to be controls in place to make sure the, the book works at the particular level it's pitched at. Um, and uh, but I don't. I, I can imagine that this would have been at the same time a very fulfilling thing for him to do uh, to, as a an avenue for his work that is different from what he normally does. I and mean, he's doing lots of illustration work. He does various strips for the New Yorker and things. He's such a good artist. My goodness me! I look at his website. It's <laughs> just glorious stuff. And you just wish he would. You know, he's, he's as good as a, a Matsu Kelly or a, obviously a Jaime Hernandez. The people that are clearly influencing him. Um, and I thought this is an absolutely joyful book. You read it, and you will read it again and again. It's just beautiful. And I love the um, composition. It makes you think of people like Alex Toth and Jesse Marsh, of course, as well. Um, just, a, just a lovely, lovely story and beautifully told. And the kind of book I wish I could be reading when I was 10 or something like that. It would be a, a favorite immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, as for whether... Uh you know, it's useful to compare it with uh, Night Fisher. I would say um, I haven't read Night Fisher, so naturally, it's not necessary. <laughs> um, but that's that's well, one way. That's one way to approach it, and it's a very valid way. I found this book to be extremely accessible and really just completely wonderful. Uh, reading it on its own, um, I uh, followed the guide in the back, so I got an adult to put his finger under all the letters while I read without obscuring the characters. But, but, but also, but also in the back, as you mentioned, Tom, they basically spell out the mission for Toon's books. Where like, there's level one readers, and that has two to three hundred easy words with short sentences, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now this is a level three book, which is eight hundred to a thousand words uh, in total. Uh, long stories divided into chapters. Readers need to make connections and speculate. However, I would say the sort of educational element of this is entirely structural, like that. In that all right, we're going to have this many transitions so, you know, the kids can tell what's going on from one thing to another. We're going to have, you know, X number of words on the page. There, there quite beautifully isn't any educational content to the story itself, which is just a great hell-raising little kid thing about a, a funny boy who just wrecks shit all the time and gets away with it. And it's, it's stuff that kids would absolutely love, I think. And... I would think if there is any effect this sort of approach had, it might be encouraging Johnson to draw in pictures in a, a sort of style that I tend to associate with manga, where there's a much greater facility for having long stories and so a lot more visual emphasis uh, going on, like decompressed storytelling. And if you only have so many words you want to use in a book, it might have had Johnson focus more on getting these Alex Tothi shadows right, on uh, making the thing move, and and holy god, that one scene near the beginning where, like, the Shark King is running, and while he's running, she sees his gills, and then he jumps off mm -hmm. the cliff, and he explodes into a shark. Like, like I wish 
superhero comics actually looked like this, you know? This is a really terrifically paced work. And I think maybe that pacing is a result of the sort of mission of this uh, more so than the story is, because it's really just a, a great funny story with a fat kid who looks just like Tubby from Little Lulu, and it's it's terrific. It's awesome. Um, I don't really have any questions to follow <laughs> Well, Robin, you know, you you mentioned earlier on that you didn't see much of 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 the earlier work in this work, and I wondered if you could talk about that a little more because it, it seemed to me it seemed to you it came across as a clean break, right? Well, the early, the the previous work is um, you can see his influences very much on on his shoulder, like it's the very nice black and white line, um, influenced by Mazzucchelli and by Toth. This work. There, there's a lot of images where he doesn't use the black line um, to like separate the colors, um, so it has sure. like, more, more warmth to the work. Um, I mean, the other work is, you know, pretty darker work where it's about people using crystal meth in Hawaii. This work is folklore, um, but yeah, it's nice. It doesn't. They, they work separately. Um, and it's interesting to see for us as adults reading this kid's book um, and getting the uh, the enjoyment out of it. I don't know. I think I kind of went and said three different things there. Well, you know, one Can thing we talked about... I... Please, no, let's, please go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tom. I just want to say, the, the, other, the other great pleasure, I think, was the, the format of the book there. It's a, it's a beautiful little hardback with nice end papers and absolutely charming title and end paper sort of illustrations the little the opening one has got this they've got the guy the little boy um nanawi his name is he's, he's swimming underwater with a with a puffer fish next to him and then the last picture is, is even better it's got him underwater playing chess with a crab and i just think that's it <laughs> it just made me smile and smile because there's, there's, a, there's they're obviously it's just a beautiful thing playing chess with I think using shells I think and, and there are these little fish swimming by on the on the, the, the kind of regular uh, tomb books end papers it's just a lovely piece of uh, that the whole thing is conceived beautifully not just the the pages of the comic but the book itself is an object uh, is, is really well designed as you would expect from 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 the designer of of war and, and all the raw books of course well it's it's uh, Jonathan Bennett that did a lot of the design work. Oh yeah, because I'm exactly exactly quite right with Bennett as well. That's quite right. Yeah. Who's fantastic? He did the um, the Terry Moriarty Jack Survives collection. And uh, okay, all the all the tune stuff so far. And uh, what were you going to say, Tom? No, you know, I wonder. I was going to ask you a question actually, which was that I I wondered how if you know you talked about the visualness of it, and we talked a bit about that throughout. You know, this kind of um, these, you know, the 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 language of how we, you know, especially we talked about it more in terms of of how it relates to text, but just in terms of the, how we how we look at the visuals of a comic. Did you did you find the the work visually sophisticated or kind of more visually straightforward? Because I thought it was very interesting how he there are two effects in 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 this book that Johnson the Chief that I thought were really interesting. One is that there's when there are straight lines, they're very beautiful and very powerful and there seems to be a, a sweep that he gets a lot of power from a sweeping movement that he then undercuts in other in very basic ways when he doesn't want to kind of, of 
go that powerfully, which is, you know, have a character charging from right to left. It almost stops the eye. And there's also a, a variety of page of structural designs, of, of page designs that are kind of that are kind of um, played off of one another. The sequence that you talk about, where the person, the, the the shark king runs away, and and that page is kind of done in this broken up, kind of jangled um, page yeah. structure, where the panels are kind of broken and played against each other, almost like scattered blocks, which well, the, breaks into and- the next page of this kind of gorgeous single image with the swoosh in it. And so I wonder, you know, do you, do you see those things as sophisticated elements of comics or basic fundamental elements of comics language? I see these as absolutely fundamental uh, elements okay. of action comics, uh, even in the way in that page the slanting of the panels matches the directionality the character is moving in, so you get the sense of him rushing towards the cliff, and then uh, the next page, you know, there, right in the center of it, there's a huge eruption of water as he hits the water and transforms, so there's an explosion that also represents his uh, transformation that gives the... Uh, uh, whole thing, it's power, and even as he's moving to the right, you have like crackles of lightning moving towards the left to sort of halt you in the center of that explosion. Uh, I mean, it's you can call it very sophisticated if you want, but I, I think it's something that people who are making and driving action comics basically need to do to get the pace of the thing moving. So I would consider it fundamentals, but at the same time, I would agree that the sort of artistry that goes into this isn't always seen, but uh, in terms of in-panel composition, yeah, his use of uh, shadow is very sophisticated. Uh, his line work, even the digital colors, it, it's really, really well done and certainly uh, the end result of a lot of work. But I think the way the comic reads so quickly and moves is is something that everybody ought to be at least moving towards, you know? It ought to be the, uh, the foundation. Right, and I, I, the one thing I, I thought, I, the reason that I chose the two books or that I paired the books together that I did I've been struggling a lot with the issue of reading comics for pleasure, and I I wonder, you know, and how much that plays a role in it, because I found those two books, this book and the Spain Rodriguez book, very pleasurable, and and a lot of their virtues can come down to, you know, that they're uh, really beautiful to look at, and entertaining, and funny, and um, kind of have these powerful, visceral moments. I wonder, you know, I, and I wonder just because I had access to you two gentlemen and also to Robin, but the, 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 I wonder, you know, in the writing that you do or in the way that you process comics, do you, do you sometimes wonder if you become disconnected from kind of just enjoying the comics that you read, kind of trying to find some sort of virtue that stands apart from whether or not you enjoy them? Or do you, do, do you distrust that enjoyment ever? Well, I think it's a little I think it's a little odd for me because I'm not the kind of writer who who typically has much of anything assigned to him. I mean, Robin showing me the reading list for this is one of the rather rare times where I'm not reading something that I haven't found for myself or that I haven't deliberately sought out for myself. So I think the idea of pleasure in reading is sort of central to what I do because I don't approach this in a uh, industrial or shall we say money-making way. Um so yeah, I, I'm very that that's very, I suppose, central to what I do. Although, part of the pleasure, I guess, for me is is 
finding things that other people find interesting and trying to interface with them. And that's, you know, where negative reactions come from sometime or from, you know, just comics that everyone is talking about and trying to get into them. But, you know, I find the intellectual process of dealing with books to be part of the pleasure of myself. It's not as, as you know, rip-snorting as The Shark King, which is a goddamn fun comic, but it that that is all part of the pleasureful aspect when I'm writing. And Paul, with your with your kind of wide survey style net that you sometimes cast, I mean, do you find that there are certain books that you enjoy more than others? Do you do you, do you trust your instincts in terms of of what you find personally pleasurable? This was for me, was it? Yeah, yeah, that was. You know, because you have so much, you cast such a wide net, and you have a very authoritative way of looking at comics, and you have a very <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I, I wondered because of the the wide survey style net that you sometimes cast, that you kind of deal with all of the comics in a specific scene, or and just a wide variety of comics. How much the pleasure that you take out of certain kinds of comics plays a role in how you direct your work. Well, I wouldn't have known about uh, Shark King without Tom alerting me, and it was actually a, a complete surprise to me. I didn't know what Archie Johnson had been getting up to. And it's a beautiful, important book, I think, which will get, I think, unfortunately, won't necessarily get the, the attention it deserves because it's seen as, seen as a kid's book, a literacy book. Um, but talking about the pleasure of reading, this is this is all about the pleasure. It's a, it's a, it's a sensual pleasure to read to read this 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 uh, short story. And um, yeah, for me, pleasure is a very important part of comics. It's uh, the pleasure in both drawing and and writing. Um, and sometimes, of course, uh, you have to make a lot of adjustments. Something like like Backdurf's work is doesn't mainly necessarily make me feel a, a pleasurable, uh, not so much just because of the, <laughs> the content, but because of the drawing style being slightly ungainly and stiff and strange. And um, but of course, we this is one of the great challenges about comics and the and rewards of comics is that you'll often find that even if you're not perhaps tuned into the the, the kind of sumptuousness of the drawing, you'll find it that the, the the comic can can work can work incredibly powerfully on you, and you have to I think cultivate an openness to drawing that maybe isn't just going to be pleasant and just going to be um, pretty. Um, Kiko Johnson certainly isn't just that. His drawing is beautiful. It's also tremendously narrative very very driven um, and it's incorporating also of course important manga techniques the key of being able to do bleed images images that run off the edges of the page is not something we've had in American comics until really quite recently now of course it's everywhere uh, it comes of course particularly from manga and in the two scenes we mentioned the Shark King transformation page there's also a wonderful double page spread where uh, Nanoi uh, tr uh, is swimming underwater which is again just absolutely blissful it just conveys the immersion literally of being underwater there are elements that, that, that you find particularly in manga but in other comics that just prove to me how, how beautiful comics can be in just making you feel that you're there with the character, um, so that it, it, this, this is a, yeah, that's what I look for to make. To, 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 I want to, I want to feel something when I'm reading comics, and, and the best comics do that. Um, just for myself, it's kind of a hard balance because a lot of the work I'm reading and the time I'm putting into reading work is to kind of prep for the interviews because I'm doing a lot of interviews, and what's kind of come out of that is like I've been getting a lot of small press work, and. I've just kind of shifted gears in being more interested in interviewing those folks now because that's I was reading that work thinking, well, I'm not going to do as many interviews with these guys because they're still pretty new and not going to have a lot to say. It's like, well, there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff coming out here, and it's work that's not really getting covered as much. 
So now it turns into my reading that I just read without having to think about it is mostly translated work where I know I'll never have a chance to interview that person. And that makes it a hard balance. It's that, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How was that for you, Tom? Like when you're that was great. No, I just I was just super no, curious. You know? I'm curious of your take now. Um, oh. you know, no, I just as I said, it's something I struggle with. You know, I I because I read so much stuff anymore, and I'm in a point where I'm not writing. A, I'm not being being a very prolific writer or reviewer about the comics I'm reading, and it's just kind of put me into this place where I don't know. You know, I almost distrust the pleasure element of it. That I, you know, that I'm if I'm going to write, I'm going to if I end up writing about those things that I enjoy, I'm going to be constrained by those things that I enjoy to only um, write about. You know, a certain very limited view of of comics. I'm going to end up only writing about Spain Rodriguez and and um, mm-hmm. and Saul Steinberg. You know, over and over and over again, and not or you know certain kinds of comics or certain ways of looking at comics. So, I think I'm just in a place where I don't really know what I'm doing when I'm writing about comics and kind of wonder if a way back into them is just um, looking at the stuff I enjoy. So it's very heartening. It's very good to, very t- to hear from, from, from the three of you that that is something that's a, a big part of what drives your, your interest in comics. I think also um, now more than ever, and it's going to echo what people have been saying in, in, in other places, is there's too much there not too much stuff but there's so much stuff i mean it's there's so many so there is this, this, it's, it's there's too much to it's not track. so much it's it, it, it's too much robin yeah <laughs> i mean we all have um, i don't yes. want to know what your reading stacks are like i mean i have uh, a I'm stack looking, i'm looking at them right now and they are they are they are towering and toppling at the moment yes yeah. <laughs> yes i've i've but, made three uh, stacks of people i need to interview soon people I want to interview and people I will never interview and kind of how I'm going to arrange that reading. Well, you have that particular thing uh, of, yeah. Maybe that just reinforces the pleasure for me because I, I know I'm not going to run out of things to write about. I just never fucking am, you know? <laughs> Impossible. Impossible. Yeah. <gasps> On that note, I think uh, I'll bid you all adieu. Thank you again, uh, Paul Gravette. Uh, Joe McAuliffe and Tom Spurgeon um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time um, two hours, six books um, that's a lot of work <laughs> thank you Robin thank you thank you guys, thank you. see you on the internet see you, on the see web. you soon Shows everything